From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. We heard from Environment Minister Stephen Gibault saying that new regulations will phase out the sale of new gas or diesel-powered p- passenger vehicles over the next 12 years and that this will encourage automakers to make sure there are more EVs available for sale at affordable prices. He talked about the regulations saying they will require automakers to ensure 20% of their total vehicles offered for sale in Canada are electric by 2026. So 20% by 2026. And after the announcement, he was also asked about incentives and rebates. Right now, uh, federally, the purchase incentive is $5,000. And that's the plan uh, that we have uh, moving forward. What will happen in the future? Will we change it? Will we will we adapt? Will will we adapt it? I don't know. But this is what we have now. That is Federal Environment Minister Stephen Guibault. Well, joining me now to talk a bit more about this is Renal Brossard, who is a Senior Director of Communications at MEI, which is the Montreal Economic Institute. And thank you, Renault, so much for being with us to talk more about this announcement. Well, thank you so much for having me. I know that uh, your uh, institute, your group, has raised a few concerns about this. Uh, Before we get into the specifics of those concerns, what are your thoughts on the announcement and the timeline as far as phasing out the sale of new gas or no diesel-powered passenger vehicles in Canada? I mean, what, what we're concerned about is that we're seeing yet another announcement, yet another helping hand for the electric vehicle industry from a government that's already announced quite a lot of different measures. Uh, so what we're, what we're wondering is, is probably more from a taxpayer perspective is uh, really just how much is the government uh, willing to give to the EV industry? And can you talk a little bit about those numbers? Because certainly there there have been a lot of subsidies that have been given to various uh, uh, companies that are in, uh, whether it's battery plants and whether it's in building electric vehicles. But when we look at those numbers, what are we talking about? You know, we're talking about billions. So first first off, as you alluded to, there's a, there's a whole... Uh, the mega subsidies that were announced this year uh, to Norvold, Tenantis, and Volkswagen uh, for their battery-making operations. So this is going to cost Canadian taxpayers $44 billion, roughly, by 2033. Of this, about $30 billion comes from Ottawa. Uh, then, of course, from a consumer standpoint, uh, there's the $5,000 federal rebate uh, that comes out of our pockets as taxpayers. So just last year, there was about $270 million spent on it. And then we're adding those new quotas, those sale quotas on top of it. Uh, and that's not even mentioning carbon taxes and gas taxes uh, that also uh, make buying a conventional car uh, less and less affordable. And it's just we're at a point where we're wondering if it's really worth tacking on yet another measure to uh, support the EV industry, or if uh, rather Ottawa should take a step back, make sure that the measure it has is very costly measure that it's put forward are working uh, before just adding another layer of regulation on top of it. Uh, there was a study done uh, that uh, came out in November, late November, by uh, another think tank. It was actually uh, the Fraser Institute that put a study out mm-hmm. looking at this, specifically looking at how much mining would need to be done. And that if we look at the government targets and to be able to bring in those mandates, or to me, I guess you can bring them in, but enable to meet those mandates, uh, this found that looking at the numbers, you would have to make uh, or create almost 400 new mines. I think the number was 388 new mines would have to be 
be built by 2030 just to satisfy these mandates for electric vehicles. I mean, that goes beyond what taxpayers are paying as far as subsidies. But are these numbers, do you think, even reasonable? I mean, we're, we're going to see whether or not uh, EV adoption keeps going up at the same rate as it has. I know it's it's been uh, trending down a little bit in uh, in recent years, but it's like the, the global trend for EV adoption is uh, is that it's increasing. Uh, but what what the government seems to forget is that these, this trend is increasing not because of government intervention, but rather because of innovation in most of the world. It's increasing because batteries are much more uh, much more reliable. They're, they have a, a much more autonomy than they used to have uh, because these these cars are getting better and better to a point where consumers are buying them. Uh, and even the government's press release acknowledged uh, that from a cost-saving perspective, uh, that, you know, for uh, the, the cost uh, over 10 years of an EV hatchback today would be about $48,000 if the, uh, when you include uh, fuel, whereas the gas-powered alternative is 82000 So when you add all of those different government incentives, and yet people are still making a choice to buy a, a conventional car, uh, it seems that this is yet another uh, misguided uh, federal uh, initiative uh, when it comes to this. Uh, are the subsidies needed, though, for for the numbers right now as far as making electric vehicles affordable to a certain group of, of, of consumers? Are those subsidies needed to even make that amount of them so-called affordable in that without the subsidies, what would the price of an electric vehicle be? I mean, the price of an electric vehicle is is a price that's that's posted. The subsidy comes afterwards. Uh, but let's be clear here: it's not it's not every subsidy that uh, or every dollar of subsidy that's actually helping buy one more electric car than it would have been bought otherwise. There's a lot of places in the world that do not have these electric car subsidies and that are seeing increased adoption of EVs. Uh, so it just seems that we're we're throwing a lot of money, we're throwing a lot of regulatory firepower uh, to support this one industry. Uh, and at a certain point, you know, we have to wonder uh, if we haven't gone a little bit too far, at least uh, in Ottawa, or if Ottawa even knows how to say no to the industry and its lobbyists when it makes them demand. Because if they were really becoming that popular and people wanted to make that switch and and are ready to adopt electric vehicles, would would the market not kind of work itself out in that there would be demand for these vehicles and the companies would then be able to sell them whether or not they were getting a government subsidy? Uh, you're absolutely right, and the market would, and that's that's what we've seen happen in a lot of places where it is trending up, even without those subsidies, even without the production subsidies, even without regulatory quotas. It is trending up in a lot of places. It, one one it's one of the concerns we have actually with uh, with what the federal government is putting forward now with these sales quotas uh, is that it's not really going to increase production of electric vehicles uh, so much as it's going to display the places where they go, uh, because of course. You know, if uh, Volkswagen makes a hundred thousand electric cars uh, every year, now I'm taking don't don't quote me on that number. Of course, I'm just uh, making an example here. But if they're making a hundred thousand electric cars a year, and that they need to sell at least forty thousand of them in Canada to stay in business here, they're just they're going to direct more of them here and less of them to the rest of the world that doesn't have those quotas. So it's not necessarily doing much for the planet. Sure, it allows the government to send a nice press release and feel good for a couple of days. Uh, but in terms of environmental impact, we're, we're actually worried that this is not going to have quite quite as much as what the federal government is hoping. 
Hmm. And and do the the subsidies as well, or the the subsidy programs, are those not also a way to try and keep like like you used that example of, of Volkswagen? I mean, they could they could set up shop wherever they wanted to, and and most times companies will set set up shop where the tax regime is favorable to them. Uh, are, are they doing this, or are they staying in Canada only because of these subsidies? I mean, some of them are. I'm sure that it's it's making a difference in their in their choice to be here or not, but. As, uh, as a great economist once said, uh, it's about what we see, but also what it, what we don't see. What we don't see are the jobs that could have been created if that money stayed in taxpayers' pockets. Uh, we actually did calculate that uh, at the MEI, and for about the same amount of money that Ottawa is going to send every year to Norvolt, Stellantis, and Volkswagen, those three large foreign companies, we could have had about 9,800 extra businesses set up shop if we had uh, used that money to uh, reduce tax rates for individuals. Uh, so it's it's always about making this sort of uh, decision. Uh, now, Ottawa is choosing to subsidize three large uh, foreign manufacturers and tie them to come here. We at the MEI think that those 9,800 Canadian-grown companies would have been a much better choice. All right, Renault, we'll leave it there for today, but I appreciate you being able to join the show and talk about this announcement from earlier in the day. Thank you so much for your time. It's always a pleasure. Until next time. We have certainly spent a fair amount of time this year talking about food prices and food trends, looking at ways people are making their grocery dollars last a little bit longer. And as we know, it is almost 2024. So at this time of year, the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University does a survey. They do it every year, taking a look at food inflation, where people are really focusing their energy on when it comes to food, what the last 12 months have shown us as far as challenges at restaurants and grocery stores. And today, the Canada's Food Price Report 2024 was released. And there are some very interesting findings in there. Probably not a huge surprise. The forecast is that the average Canadian family could spend up to $701 more on groceries in 2024. That's compared to 2023. But what else is in this report? Well, joining us to talk more about this is Sylvain Charlebois. He is the director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie. Sylvain, thank you so much for being with us. Well, hello. I love talking about this because I think we, we think about diet and exercise a bit about New Year's resolutions and looking forward, but this study that you have done really goes into food trends and how things might change. Let's go through some of the things that you asked people in looking at the price of food. What were you looking to get from people? Well, first of all, we want to know, and we do, we do this every year. We want we want to know what Canadians are expecting uh, for the following year. And so, uh, given what has happened in 2023, and 2023 was a complicated year at the grocery store for sure. And so, we want to know exactly what people were expecting for for 2024. Clearly, people are expecting higher prices. Uh, I mean, it's above 80 percent. We've never seen that before. Uh, and we are expecting uh, Canadians to continue uh, to follow strict strategies around bargains and following better and getting to better deals as much as possible. That that came out pretty clearly. Eighty percent, yeah, Canadians saying that they expect prices conti- to continue rising. Do you think that's just we've become so used to it that they've been rising so much? It, it's kind of difficult to even imagine them going the other way. 
Well, I think, I mean, over the last couple of years, what I've noticed, like a lot of people just thought that, you know, this is going to last for a while and then prices will drop again back to uh, pre-COVID uh, prices. But, I mean, now the language is a bit different. Uh, the tone is a bit different that people are realizing that, well, that's not necessarily how inflation works because salaries are going up. The cost of everything is going up. Why would food prices go down? And so people are starting to connect dots and, and, and accepting that, well, for food budgets, you just need to readjust for the longer term. And so th I think that has changed a little bit. Not, not everyone is on board with that philosophy, of course, but way more people understand that this is not about greed. This is not about uh, this is the, what has happened the last 12 months is very much about a global phenomena. And uh, and now we're just we're just trying to cope with with higher food prices. Inflation is really a tax on everyone. It's hard to get rid of of a tax, basically, because things do go up from time to time. Uh, you also asked people about what they will be looking for or how to kind of make their dollars stretch further. Uh, people looking for lower prices. Uh, I know a lot of people said, too, that they were going to be looking for loyalty points or programs where you get uh, something back or you're, that the stores have those programs. Any surprises there that people are really focusing on that? Um, well, no. So this is the one thing that I'm expecting in 2024 uh, the, the most significant battleground will be loyalty because uh, we've all been trained now to bargain hunt and bargain hunters uh, tend not to be all that loyal to towards anything really brands stores doesn't matter I mean they're just looking for a good deal and I think that's going to be the key in 2024 and to do that to get us to go back to stores They'll have to offer us some good deals, loss leaders, bargains, rebates, uh, more generous loyalty programs. And so people are going to be on the lookout for, for, these, uh, for these incentives. And do you think stores will try and take advantage of that in that it's one thing to use coupons and get that discount, but when we're talking about loyalty points and collecting those points, then using those points to purchase other things, is that how stores are trying to get people, well, I mean, they are called loyalty programs, but, but getting it so that if you do focus on one, that's where you're going to be doing the bulk of your shopping? Likely, but uh, I mean, if you look at all major grocery stores, all of them have actually made some adjustments to their loyalty program in recent months. Uh, uh, Sobe's actually decided to go with Scene Plus. Uh, Metro Down East uh, uh, has created a new in-house program. Uh, Loblaws has made some, uh, some adjustments to its uh, PC Optimum program. So it's going to be up to consumers. And by the way, Costco was supposed to raise uh, its membership fee by 10 bucks by December 1st. Uh, that was rumored a long time ago. Everyone was expecting they didn't do it. That's a sign. That's a sign that really they don't want to scare off members. They want to make sure that they keep the same amount of members going into their stores. Hmm, that, that, that does make sense, sir. Uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, yep. One of the figures in, in here as well, food waste, because I think people have been paying more attention to that. And one of the numbers uh, that uh, that you quoted from the National Youth Council, the average Canadian household generates about 140 kilograms of food waste annually. Uh, you asked people about the cost of that and reducing that. And it does seem like a lot of Canadians would like to bring that number down. Yeah. 
it's $2,500. Uh, and I think that a lot of people are, are saying to themselves, hmm, how can I help myself? I can actually offset the impact of inflation for a couple of years just by focusing on food waste. And I think a lot of people actually are doing that. More people are working from home now. And so that makes you a better inventory manager. Uh, you don't really mind eating uh, leftovers for three days in a row, say, <laughs> and that will actually reduce waste like significantly. So I think that's going to be, that was the focus in 2023. We saw that uh, last year and it came up again this year. The, the, the new things that we, that came up this year uh, are like cheap things you can do to help your own health, like drinking water, uh, exercising, uh, to align your lifestyle with uh, with the things that you eat. I think a lot of people had to make some some nutritional compromises in 2023, and and now in 2024 they'll recalibrate and and try to focus more on their own health. Well, continuing now with Sylvain Charlebois, the director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. And we've been taking a look at some of the findings of this year's Food New Year's Food Resolution Survey, taking a look at what has happened in 2023 and what changes, if any, people are planning on making in 2024. And just before the break, Sylvain mentioned diet and exercise actually came in pretty high on this list. People saying they're going to exercise more, drink more water, try to make healthy choices. And that was right up there with also trying to find good deals, hoping that people will be able to use loyalty points or coupons or find better deals to make those grocery dollars last. But on the note of health and where people are making choices, Sylvain, it does make sense that if you are focusing on health and when you look at the answers that people gave in this survey, they were asked about specific products. What were they going to cut back on? And top of the list, snacks and convenience foods, things that often aren't so great for us. 39% also said they won't be going out to eat in restaurants as much, maybe because we tend not to eat as healthy when we're eating out and we can lose control over what specifically is in the food. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, you can tell that uh, 2024 will not necessarily be a good year for restaurants. Oh my goodness. Uh, dining in is going to be in fashion. People will uh, want to treat themselves, but they want to avoid the tips. They want to avoid the expensive alcohol, and they want to stay home. Uh, so it's going to be a grab-and-go kind of year at the grocery store. Uh, and if they do go out at a restaurant, it, it will be for a special occasion, but it won't be as frequent. And so uh, consumers are being very careful. The other thing that really came up a lot more this year uh, is alcohol consumption. Uh, that number was really high. Over 30% of, of Canadians are actually thinking of reducing their amount of alcohol they actually drink. That's the highest number we've ever seen. Uh, and I wonder, too, we've, we've talked a fair bit about this also, and even looking at some of there have been some bars opening up that are non-alcoholic bars, places to go. And not that that's going to really help you uh, if we're talking about the money that you're spending, but it does seem like people are, are making that shift and looking to uh, fitting in with the other kind of healthier life choices going away from alcohol. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, and, and it came up a lot this year uh, with new guidelines that were suggested um, along with Health Canada, there were uh, there were discussions about uh, taxes on alcohol. Uh, I know 
I mean, alcohol was a big scene this year. We didn't, perhaps you guys didn't realize it in Vancouver, but I certainly noticed that a lot more people were talking about alcohol and, and the role alcohol uh, does play in our lives. And, uh, and so I think that's, that is going to be a recurring theme for 2024, uh, along with, uh, with dining out or dining in. And when you look at that, too, and then a higher number, but then I, I found it really interesting when going through all the answers to these questions, but then when you ask people, what is your primary New Year's resolution related to food for 2024? Uh, consume more non-alcohol beverages over alcohol. It still came in at 3%. It wasn't really close to the, to the top of the list, even though in other parts of the survey that did seem like it was more important for people. Yeah, absolutely. This year, actually, we approached that question differently. Typically, we would say, click what you want. So if you want to do this and that, that's fine. But this time around, we only asked people to pick one resolution. Mm. And so, uh, so that percent, you're right, that percentage is very low. But uh, as soon as you get over 10%, when you have a lot of different choices, it means that a lot of people are thinking about it. So. Yeah. It's so interesting, though, even even with that, though, with eat healthier, make better food choices coming in just shy of 15 percent, uh, as you had said, to cook more meals at home, reduce going out. But then none of the above people that don't have a food related resolution for 2024 that came in at 25 percent. So what does that tell us? Yeah, it may, I think it means that people are either not thinking about committing to anything related to food or they can't. <laughs> Or maybe they eat, they need Ozempic. I don't know. <laughs> that could be the Ozempic question. Ozempic was not a choice. Was not a choice. <laughs> okay, it might have been interesting if that had been a choice, <laughs> and people could have brought that in on on the discussion. Um, so I know, but it is a big topic in the food industry. I have to tell you. I mean, a lot of companies are thinking about what's happening with these uh, drugs. There are more drugs coming into the market. And uh, a lot of people are thinking about it. I mean, in the United States alone, there's over 12 million people using, uh, using those drugs, and they, and they do lose weight. And I've spoken to a few people uh, asking them about their diets, and their diets do change dramatically. So, it, so the food industry is paying close attention to this, to what's going on here. Oh, exactly. And, and even talking to people, and I think it's making headlines and, and happening everywhere, talking to people too, to, saying not only do their diets change, but it's, it's very much what they're craving, what, how much food they want, and a real change exactly. in their chemistry that, that they notice. Yeah, exactly. So if you're thinking about your health, if you're thinking about you know, cutting on snacks, I mean, look at the look at the Pepsi shares. Look at shares for Mon Lee's and uh, Nestle. I mean, all these companies are down now because of rumors around uh, around these drugs, including Ozempic. So, yeah, absolutely. And and of course, the food industry will have to adapt if that if that momentum continues. Well, maybe snacking is going to have to be defined a little bit differently. And you can't really sell sugary items anymore or things that contain too much fat or sodium you have to think differently about the customer which isn't such a bad thing if suddenly we're having healthier choices and better options oh i think so i mean it's not necessarily bad it's just you need to adapt uh it's the same for the front of package labeling rule that's coming up in 2026 if, if your product has too much sodium sugar or fat well guess what you have to label it clearly so the consumer knows what 
right now, a lot of companies are reformulating their products. So again, policy is not necessarily a bad thing all the time. And, and, and innovation in pharma schools is not necessarily a bad thing either. But at the same time, companies have to adapt to a new clientele. It is interesting times for sure. Sylvain, we'll leave oh, it yeah. there for today, but I know we will talk to you again soon. Thank you so much for doing this. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for being with us on this Tuesday afternoon. Well, we haven't talked about the Online News Act in a while, but Bill C-18 is now officially in place. You might recall this was an act introduced by the Canadian government, and it was sold as a way to enhance fairness for news publishers by carving out a way for them to be compensated by tech giants. It certainly has been controversial, and there are a lot of opinions on how this was rolled out and whether or not this actually is beneficial to newsmakers. Well, joining me now is Matt Hatfield, Executive Director of Open Media. Open Media is a community-driven organization, an organization that works to keep the internet open, surveillance-free, and affordable. Matt, thank you so much for being with us today. Hi there. Thanks for having me. When we go back to look at how this bill was announced and kind of how it unfolded, how it's changed a little bit, what are your thoughts on the bill itself? Well, it's an interesting situation. I would say at this point, the bill has basically been dismantled because uh, it wasn't working. So, yes, it did come into effect today. But the government through regulation changed many of the core considerations of the bill such that uh, Google, one of the two targets, is basically only agreeing to what they would have agreed to without regulation a couple years ago. And Meta, as far as we can tell, is going to stay out and and not allow sharing of news on on Canadian platforms. And what does that do, do you think, then, as far as for Canadian news content and for access to news, what does that do to Canadians? So the big thing hanging over people has been whether Google would also stop news sharing. And that's not going to happen now. So that's good. You can still use Google search to find uh, the news that you need. Um, Unfortunately, Meta not allowing uh, news on their platform is really going to hurt small, local and startup news organizations in Canada quite a bit. Some of them have have stopped hiring. Uh, Certainly, they're not forecasting a great year next year because they did meet most of their users, certainly new users on Meta platforms. And when you look at what Meta has done and and blocking uh, Canadian news, blocking those links, they have been able to reach deals with uh, other media companies, specifically in Australia. Is it because the acts are so different that Meta was able to reach a deal there, but not with Canadian companies? Yeah, I think it's partly differences in the act. I think it's also partly Meta's business strategy has been changing and evolving. And uh, I, I don't think Meta really wants their user base to be focused on news. Um, they want to be more of a social, you know, cat video and, and fun platform. And uh, so they, the government made a bet that news would remain quite valuable to Meta. And Meta said, no, it isn't. And they are sticking to their guns on that. And can you remind us again, when we're talking about Meta, what exact, what platforms are we talking about? <laughs> quite a few. So that would be Facebook, uh, WhatsApp, Threads and Instagram are all meta platforms that uh, Canadians might be using. And and I would imagine, too, it has grown quite a lot as far as the numbers of people that are getting news content from those platforms. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of people sort of passively consume things that their friends and family share on those platforms, or at least did up till now. 
And uh, we're really encouraging our base, you know, don't go to Meta for your news. Um, subscribe to the news platforms you want to, either financially or at least to their email list, and make sure you're still connected to, to quality news production. And that has been one of the arguments, hasn't it, that even with this, if it means that the news links aren't being shared on these platforms and or they're not signing on to this deal, it's not as if the news doesn't exist. It just means people might have to look harder for it or look elsewhere for it. Yeah, that's right. So even if Google had been blocking, we still could have gone to another search platform, you know, Yahoo or Bing to find news. Uh, but you can still find news on Google today. And, you know, it was a bit of a controversy during the wildfires that you couldn't share on, on meta platforms, uh, news of the wildfires. Well, you know, don't log on to Facebook if you need emergency information. Uh, use Google or, or connect with a, a more appropriate source for that kind of information. And, and that's a good example. The example of sharing the news on that as well, is it specifically news links? Because, because it seems like there is a big difference with someone, say, sharing a photo or sharing a post about something that if they're not working for a news agency or it's not considered news, uh, does it really count or would that not be allowed? Whereas a link from a news organization is, is much more clear. That's, that's a news article that's linked to that, that, uh, that organization. Yeah, that's right. So you can still post your own personal thoughts about what's going on in the news on meta platforms. Uh, but if you try to share a link to an official source, um, it will likely be blocked. And of course, it, it can be a bit ambiguous to decide who is a news organization and who isn't. And a few organizations have been caught in Canada that aren't really news organizations, but are parody websites or comedy, that kind of thing. Have also been caught up. Yeah, I do remember uh, seeing uh, some of the parody accounts and uh, others too, and, and places that really would never have thought of themselves as news stations or uh, news agencies being caught up in this. Um, you mentioned that the the bill has changed a, a, a fair amount since it was first introduced. Are there things that this bill th- does well or that are a benefit? Do you think? So a few news organizations may come out ahead. Um, Google has committed a total of $100 million, uh, through funding here. But of course, you have to subtract all the news support Google was already providing, which I think is going to be wrapped into this. Um, and it's really the, the loss of the sort of free publicity and free sharing on Meta that is going to hurt particularly startup news outlets that are trying to build their audience. Um, I think they're very unlikely to come out ahead here. And there's also the issue, isn't there, that even though these uh, companies, these platforms weren't paying for the content, the people making the content, um, in many cases, it was being monetized and there were ads and the the content makers were still making revenue, even if it wasn't coming from the platforms themselves. Yeah, it was always a very thin argument, this idea that Uh, platforms were earning a lot of revenue uh, alongside news. I guess the idea is you're scrolling through your feed, you might see a link to a news story, not click through to it, uh, but Meta's earning ads as you scroll past it, and somehow that's value. It's not very, very much value, I wouldn't say. And if you do click on the story and go to a news website, of course, the ads that appear on the news website are still being paid to the news organization, not to platforms. Right. Uh, are there things that you think, though, are, or would like to see if it could still be improved upon or changed? Yeah, well, I mean, I think the the bottom line is, is this has not proved a, a viable path to supporting news production in Canada. Now, Canadians do need news, uh, not just in our feed, but we need, you know, high quality journalism to be done. And we need to have trust in, in the independence of news and that it's uh, being produced from a diversity of perspectives. So I think the the sort of reset conversation next year is going to be, you know, seeing now that this isn't actually supporting the news in a very substantial, substantive way, 
is there a different or better approach? And I think people will start exploring that uh, in 2024. And, and looking at where the money will go as well, and this is specifically the deal struck uh, between the Canadian government and with Google. So so with that fund, that will then presumably go to broadcasters, that the money, the bulk of the money goes to print and online media. But the determination, the formula is determined by how many full-time employees they have. Do you think that's a fair way of, of determining that? Well, it's another way the smallest players get uh, a little bit um, poorly treated in the end. Uh, a lot of small startup publications, you know, they might have a lot of freelancers, a lot of part-time folk. They may, they may not qualify or they may not qualify for that much funding for that reason. Um, but I think you're touching on one of the few ways the C18 did get better in this final determination. Uh, under the first calculation, CBC and, and the big broadcasting giants would have gotten most of the money, which made no sense for where our, our news problems actually are. Uh, and they've had a, a cap put on how much they will earn from this. It won't be the majority of it. Right. So it'll be more evenly dispersed. Somewhat more evenly, yes. Although if, if you're a, a startup outlet with five part-time journalists, you still don't actually qualify under this system. Right. Even though you might be sharing that content and be putting content on those platforms. Yeah, Exactly. Uh, do you think it will will change at all? I know that some of the early numbers that came that they saw people uh, that were getting Canadian news on Facebook a huge drop on that. But but is it not such a bad thing that, like you said uh, off the start, if if it's not that people aren't consuming news or getting access to news, it's just that they're doing it in a different way, and that maybe you don't get it from Facebook, maybe you get it from the news organization itself, and you know which ones that you're following or wh- where you want to get that news. Is it is it perhaps making people work a little harder or or try and find the news, but at least making sure people know it is still out there? Yeah, I think so. I think different news consumers are different. So some of us uh, will really do the work of seeking it out, and others you know, it comes up in the theater, it doesn't. Uh, but we're really encouraging people to make that connection with your local news organization. Uh, it, it's a really important part of sort of accountability in your local community to know someone, some reporter is going to your, your local city council meetings and, you know, reporting on what's going on and, and who's saying what. A lot of small Canadian communities don't have that now, and that's a real problem for democracy. All right. Well, Matt, thank you for joining us and for talking more about this. Uh, It's certainly uh, one that uh, I know people have been interested in and as it has changed over the last few months. So thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure. You take care. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.